Hello, my name is Aaron Bauer. I'm a PGY3 neurology resident here at Young and Haven Hospital. Uh, today, we will be discussing key kind of nutritional deficiencies and their relationships to the central nervous system with our program director here, Dr. Muller. Good afternoon, Dr. Muller. Good afternoon, Aaron. Glad to uh, have you joining. And Aaron is, uh, uh, is taking over a role in the podcast, and we're delighted to have him along. And this is one we've been planning on and wanting to do for a while. And I always have to say at the start of these sessions is um, neither Aaron or I are, are experts in nutritional deficiencies within the uh, nervous system, although we have certainly encountered these diseases. And, and our focus is really on um, discussing the things that are needed for preparing for uh, examinations. So we're going to make that focus. You know, with any of these podcasts, we use a number of different reading sources. Um, but I did want to acknowledge that we did uh, find one resource particularly helpful for this podcast. And, and I, I thought I should mention it and point our audience to this resource. Uh, there was an article in the AAN's publication Continuum called Nutrients and Neurology by Niraj Kumar. Uh, it was uh, from the June 2017 issue. Uh, just a superb resource. As I said, we reviewed uh, several resources to produce this podcast, but this was particularly important, and, and I thought I just would point it out as just something truly spectacular I'd point our audience to as well. All right. So today we were going to focus mostly on the, the vitamins. So we are going to start with some of the water-soluble vitamins, uh, most notably the B vitamins, which do interact with the nervous system pretty regularly, and then some of the fat-soluble vitamins as well, A, D, E, um, and then maybe just touch on briefly at the end, copper. I think that's a good way to start. <laughs> so, uh, Aaron, why don't we do this? Uh, we'll go through the B vitamins and uh, just um, to list them, because we can keep them in our listeners' minds, the ones that we... Uh, deal with a lot. We have vitamin B1, also known as thiamine. We have vitamin B2, riboflavin, which we're not going to talk about here, but actually is useful as a potential prophylactic agent for migraine. So that's uh, another water-soluble vitamin we think about. There's vitamin B6, pyridoxine. We will be talking about that one. Uh, vitamin B9, uh, more fam famously known as folic acid, uh, something we think about a lot uh, in <clears throat> neurological disease and also in prenatal uh, care of women. And, and uh, as an epileptologist, I think about vitamin B9 a lot uh, in uh, the prenatal care of women taking anti-seizure medications. And then everybody's favorite, vitamin B12, uh, also known as cyanocobalamin. Uh, but uh, vitamin B12 deficiency is probably one of the more common deficiencies that we encounter. So Aaron, here's how I'm going to start. I'm going to uh, give you a vignette. Uh, this shouldn't be too difficult. And you have to tell me which of our bees is likely the source. Uh, so I'll start with this one. Uh, what about a 45-year-old man uh, who recently had gastric bypass surgery within the last six months or so? Uh, and is admitted with acute confusion, unsteadiness, and some blurring of his vision. And on examination, you notice some ataxia, uh, and you also notice some uh, gaze evoked nystagmus that is present in multiple different directions. So which one of our Bs is this probably? So in this setting, coming in with 
at least some of these ocular abnormalities, these this gait ataxia, these mental status changes that would push me more towards thinking about uh, vitamin D1 or thiamine. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about here. Uh, this is uh, thiamine deficiency. And every one of our listeners who's a student who's uh, done uh, various uh, examinations, uh, it, it's pretty hard to get through medical training without encountering many questions uh, on standardized tests focusing on thiamine deficiency, uh, vitamin B1. And, and, and I think that's appropriately so. Uh, <laughs> failure to recognize thiamine deficiency could result in really severe uh, permanent neurological impairment. Uh, and it's uh, easily fixed. Uh, it's something that's easily addressed uh, if, uh, if treated uh, early. So uh, I think uh, treating thiamine deficiency is really important. You know, thiamine's present in lots of foods. Uh, it can be uh, present in some fortified uh, grains. We can also see it in nuts. Uh, and it's, uh, it's absorbed in sort of the distal small bowel in the, in the jejunum and the ileum. Uh, and I think classically, uh, we see this in people with alcohol use disorder, uh, people with chronic malnutrition for a variety of reasons. Um, and that can be alcohol use disorder, anorexia nervosa, gastrointestinal surgeries, uh, hyperemesis gravidarum or other sort of problems with recurrent emesis. The requirement, the daily requirement of thiamine is in the range of uh, one milligram per day. And we'll think about that in terms of how we think about how we supplement uh, thiamine uh, and how we replete it in somebody we think has a deficiency. But there can be an increased requirement in people who are ill. And so sometimes you can see a more rapid decline in, in people who are critically ill or even people that are chronically ill. Uh, and that may be why uh, some people who are chronically ill or have chronic disorders may uh, be more susceptible to thiamine deficiency. And there can be several neurological syndromes. You know, the Wernicke's encephalopathy is the one that we think about the most. Uh, and, and Aaron, what's our triad? This is, every medical student knows our triad for Wernicke's encephalopathy. So the classic triad would be the things that we touched on uh, briefly with the vignette. So ocular abnormalities, ophthalmoplegias and stagmas with a gait ataxia, so the cerebellar findings, and then mental status change, usually more concentration, delirium, psychoses. Yeah, I think that's that pattern. And, and you don't uh, see all of these uh, abnormalities in every patient. There can be atypical uh, features. I think the dead giveaway is the ocular abnormalities, the uh, ophthalmoplegia or the nystagmus. And the times we've picked up acute Wernicke's encephalopathy, the times I've seen that in my experience when it's been a real slam dunk case, I've seen those ocular abnormalities. And one of the really remarkable things about that, and this is one of those things that is very rewarding as a clinician in real time, uh, repletion of thiamine causes resolution of those ocular abnormalities often very quickly and, and can be within uh, a few hours even of the initial repleting dose of thiamine in some cases. So it, it is really quite remarkable. The mental status changes may be a variable degree, and I agree this tends to be disruption of frontal subcortical circuits, attention, concentration, sometimes behavioral sorts of problems. And then the gait ataxia uh, tends to be your midline cerebellar structures, right? So gait unsteadiness, gait dysfunction, uh, sometimes dizziness or uh, vestibular dysfunction. 
Uh, and, and in severe cases, you can certainly have some uh, appendicular ataxia as well. But you don't have to see all three features. And I think it's our bias as physicians, even as non-neurologists, that if there's any question of altered mental status, unsteadiness, delirium, and, and somebody is in any of those high-risk categories we discussed earlier, uh, that we will uh, replete uh, or at the very least supplement. And it's because early supplementation is going to uh, result in dramatic improvement of deficits. The natural history is that the eye movement abnormalities often improve most dramatically. The unsteadiness or ataxia often takes a little bit longer to improve, uh, but can improve. And depending on how long the patient has been deficient, uh, the cognitive difficulties are often the slowest to improve and the less complete to improve. So sometimes uh, you see ongoing cognitive dysfunction. And, and in a few patients I've followed longer term who clearly had Wernicke's encephalopathy, we have seen uh, some subtle cognitive dysfunction uh, or even more so, e even more progressive. And in, in the worst case, right, you can get an amnestic syndrome. And, and what's the name of that? So that is Korsakoff syndrome. Yeah. So Korsakoff syndrome is really a severe amnestic syndrome, right? And it's a problem with both encoding and retrieval of memories. And so these are patients who really have severe dysfunction in encoding new memories, can often have a prominent retrograde amnesia as well. And one of the classic features of this amnestic syndrome, because of the combination of the amnesia and maybe some of the behavioral dysfunction, is what we call confabulation. Fortunately, this is not a disorder I've seen too often. I do remember a patient with this disorder when I was a resident and the confabulation was, was dramatic. Uh, and that is not remembering things, but sort of replacing that with uh, some fiction. You know, the classic example is you walk into the patient's room uh, the first time you've ever seen them, have you ever met me before? And, and they say with great degree of certainty, oh yeah, definitely. You've it, many times, you know, you've been here before, you're the doctor. And, and there's often sort of a, mo a portion of truth about that. They see your white coat or, or, or your badge or something and know you're the doctor, but uh, clearly they've never seen you before. So those are the, that's sort of that we sometimes call Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome because there can be sort of a continuum between those two, the Wernicke encephalopathy being the disorder with the acute onset and acutely treated, and Korsakoff syndrome being something a little more subacute or chronic that can follow uh, Wernicke's encephalopathy, especially in somebody who hasn't been repleted adequately or early enough. We have had cases of another neurological disorder that can be seen in chronic deficiency of vitamin B1, uh, B1 of thiamine. What's that called? So the other disorder neurologically associated with B1 could be more the beriberi type syndromes. So dry or wet, generally speaking. And can you walk me through the difference between dry and wet beriberi? So the difference between dry and wet is essentially the in the wet form. So by wet, they mean there's generally a degree of heart failure as well. So usually a high cardiac output heart failure. So you get a lot of edema on top of more of the classical symptoms of the dry beriberi, which is more sensory motor, distal, and axonal peripheral neuropathies. Yeah. So, you know, thiamine deficiency is on our differential diagnosis for a fairly profound axonal sensory motor polyneuropathy, you know, and in the acute stage, uh, the dry beriberi can look 
a little bit like an axonal variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome, for example. And I remember the residents presenting a case of somebody who I think had a history of gastric surgery, who developed an ascending sensory motor uh, type of polyneuropathy and, and was found to have uh, beriberi. So that's uh, something to think about. Again, uh, the treatment for that is the same as uh, the treatment for any other type of thiamine deficiency, and that is more thiamine. So Aaron, how much thiamine is enough thiamine? So acutely, we actually do replete much more aggressively than we would in somebody who just needs a little bit of extra supplementation daily. Um, so generally, the practice here, at least at Yale, we generally do like, I think, 100 to 200 um, IV thiamine every eight hours or so for several days, usually about three. Yeah. So, so our protocol uh, at Yale is uh, at least 600 milligrams a day in divided doses. If you uh, look in other sources, it can be up to 1500 milligrams per day uh, in divided doses for at least a few days, then ongoing intravenous therapy for a period of time after that. And then a maintenance dose of sort of that 50 to 100 milligrams uh, daily after that. And I, I certainly have patients with chronic alcohol use disorder or with chronic absorption issues because of gastrointestinal dysfunction who remain on some maintenance of dose of uh, thiamine long-term. Because it's a water-soluble vitamin, because we're not aware of any major problems with excess, uh, it seems to be easily excreted uh, if it's in excess. There's really not much harm involved in, in giving excessive uh, thiamine. You know, the, the exact dose, it, it's not as if there are randomized trials to tell you exactly how much. So a lot of this is based on expert opinion, but, uh, the, but the bottom line is a lot. 100 milligrams a day intravenously in somebody who you are very, with a very high suspicion for a thiamine deficiency syndrome, either Wernicke's encephalopathy or, or dry berry berry. Uh, is not enough. It really needs to be more than that. Exactly how much there's some debate. Here we use at least 600 milligrams per day. Other sources recommend even much higher than that. So that's thiamine deficiency. I mean, I, I think it's something we're all, I'll give you another case. How about what if I had a 39-year-old male patient who's really into nutrition, exercise, healthfulness, and wanting to make sure that he's optimizing his body function. And as a result of that, he's ordered a number of vitamin supplement supplements uh, on the internet. Uh, he takes about 10 pills a day of various su supplements, vitamins, minerals, in order to really maximize his health. And then over a period of several weeks, he starts to notice some numbness, tingling, and a decreased sensation in his feet. And they've actually started to uh, involve his fingertips as well. Which one of the B vitamins do we think might be the culprit in this health enthusiast patient? So in somebody taking a lot of vitamins, um, generally there's only one B vitamin that we commonly associate with, uh, you know, neurologic problems in excess. Um, so in that case, I'd be thinking more about uh, high vitamin B6. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the correct answer. So it's one of those cautious things because sometimes we supplement the B vitamins in people with a neuropathic process. And there is the risk of worsening neuropathy with too much uh, B6. It's one to know about. This is also something to be aware of in children who might be on supplemental vitamin B6 uh, to help with the behavioral side effects of levetiracetam. So this is something that comes up in 
child neurology. Uh, there is some evidence to suggest that vitamin B6 can help with the behavioral side effects of levetiracetam. The mechanism is not all that well understood, but, but it can be helpful. Adult neurologists don't tend to use it because it doesn't tend to be all that helpful in, in adults. But too much uh, excessive vitamin B6 supplementation can lead to a polyneuropathy. What's interesting is that uh, a deficiency of pyridoxine can cause a neuropathy as well. So you, you can be tough on both ends. Again, you have to take a lot. And the times when we've heard or seen about it is when somebody's getting a little over-enthusiastic about the supplemental vitamins. Vitamin B6 is really in a lot of things. It's in a lot of meat products, fish, eggs, soy, lots of nuts, and then, and then even in grains. So uh, it, it's really in a lot of things. And it's absorbed a little more proximally. Uh, so it's in the proximal small intestine. Again, deficiency can happen in people with GI problems, with alcohol use disorder. And again, that's probably both from chronic malnutrition, but also possibly because of chronic uh, gastrointestinal absorption issues. Other malabsorption syndromes, again, the uh, gastric or weight loss surgeries would put you at risk of this. And then there are medications actually, which can inhibit your, the function or the ability to absorb uh, B6. And these include a number of different antibiotic uh, medications, isoniazid, uh, cyclosporin, and other immunosuppressants, hydrocortisone, penicillamine. So there are lots of things where you have to watch for B6 deficiency. There's a list of medications that can do it. In either deficiency or excess, you can get a peripheral polyneuropathy. And in excess, you can also get a sensory neuronopathy. So we don't see sensory neuronopathies or ganglionopathies all that often. Uh, the most common time that we see it probably is with uh, perineoplastic syndromes like anti-Hue associated perineoplastic syndrome. And this is that you get this dramatic sensory ataxia, areflexia, decreased sensation, you know, uh, unsteadiness on the feet. Excessive vitamin B6 can cause this. The last thing that we probably should know about pyridoxine again, getting back to the child neurology listeners, is that there is a genetic syndrome where you can have pyridoxine-dependent epilepsy. And so in sort of early childhood or infantile seizures that are difficult to control, one of the treatments that is often attempted, usually during video EEG monitoring, if you can, or attempted uh, empirically at some point with these sort of very severely progressively worsening epilepsy syndromes is a trial of pyridoxine of vitamin B6. And there's a lot of different reasons that you might have vitamin B6 dependent epilepsy. Uh, that can include an enzyme, a specific enzyme deficiency, one that allows the pyridoxine to degrade, and that's the pyridoxal 5' prime phosphate oxidase deficiency. And there are others and again, what you get are these infantile seizures, uh, epileptic encephalopathy. So neonatal or, or early infantile myoclonic and tonic seizures with an encephalopathy, uh, you'll attempt the trial of pyridoxine. So those, those are the special things about pyridoxine. So we have both the neuropathy in deficiency, we have the ganglionopathy in excess, and then we have pyridoxine dependence in epilepsy. And then finally, of course, pyridoxine being used to treat the behavioral uh, side effects of, uh, of uh, levetiracetam. Like with everything else, treatment, if you don't have enough, give more. If you are taking too much, stop it. Nice, simple, straightforward treatment plan for that one. <laughs> All right. Here's another case. We have a 21-year-old uh, man 
who uh, has some substance use problems, who has developed a relatively subacute onset, so over maybe two or three weeks of progressively worsening ascending tingling of the toes moving up to the legs and into the fingers and is unsteady on his feet. He's quite thin uh, and looks maybe mildly malnourished and he's got normal strength, has diminished or normal reflexes in arms and legs and has predominantly a proprioceptive type of problem. He has very impaired joint position sensation, vibration sensation, abnormalities, a very severe Romberg and, and is really ataxic. So what problem do you think this young person has? So a lot of what you're telling me at this point is, you know, pushing towards um, a pretty profound sensory deficit and at least a pretty profound deficit in like proprioceptive impairment. So I'd be thinking more about like the, the dorsal columns at this point. Um, at least for this patient. And, and why did I throw in the substance use disorder? I mean, we always have to be cautious about our biases. And we do know that uh, sometimes there's a longer delay to diagnosis in people with substance use disorder because they're not believed. But in this case, this clue, which may come up on a, an examination, actually might give you a clue as to the vitamin deficiency. So uh, how do you put that together? So in this case, in terms of substance use, somebody with really profound sensory difficulties, and I'm thinking about the dorsal columns, I'd be thinking about somebody um, who's abusing maybe something like nitrous oxide or whippets, um, which would point us more towards like a vitamin B12 deficiency, more acutely, subacutely. Absolutely. So uh, I think, you know, if you saw a vignette like that, this is what we're looking at. And, and We'll talk a little bit about tying that together, but B12 deficiency is, is one of the most common vitamin deficiencies. And there's a number of reasons for that. There's actually a fair bit of B12 in food. You know, they, they, it's in various fortified foods. It's also in meat, fish, egg, dairy, and some legumes. But it, 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 there are some tricks uh, to its absorption, right? Uh, um, there are, people can have various problems that lead to malabsorption, even if they're getting enough. And we certainly run into issues where we get, are giving people supplementation or even repletion and, and the numbers aren't budging, you know, their B12 uh, numbers aren't budging. And, and one, that's almost certainly because of absorption issues. So, so Aaron, we haven't talked as much about the absorption of the other B vitamins, but I actually think B12 is so ubiquitous, so common that it is worth thinking through this. And again, I always have to say, I am not a gastroenterologist or nutritionist, uh, and these are just the things I read, but it is helpful to think about it. So you have vitamin B12, which is present in your food, right? And it's protein bound. So it's bound to proteins and it has to become protein unbound. And that happens in the acidic environment of the stomach. So a problem with gastric acidity levels can cause a problem with release of the vitamin B12 from the proteins that it might be uh, bound to. B12 then exits the stomach and travels along with intrinsic factor, although it might not necessarily be bound to intrinsic factor yet, into the more proximal part of the small intestine. Then the B12 
binds to intrinsic factor. And remember, intrinsic factor is generated in the stomach by the gastric parietal cells. This is feeling like USMLE review again, you know, but the intrinsic factor is generated in the stomach that binds to the B12 in the proximal small intestine. And then that dimer of the B12 and intrinsic factor is absorbed in the distal small intestine and from there is allowed to be used for cellular machinery. So basically you have unbinding of the B12 from proteins in the gastric environment or in the acidic environment of the stomach, production of intrinsic factor in the stomach from the gastric parietal cells, binding of B12 to intrinsic factor in the proximal small intestine, and then absorption of the B12 in the uh, lower small intestine in order for it to be used in the cellular machinery. So you can have B12 deficiency because of a number of different problems, right? You can have B12 deficiency related to an, an inadequately acidic gastric environment. Somebody, for example, who's on a, a proton pump inhibitor or an H2 blocker might have an inadequately acidic gastric environment and maybe have a insufficient dietary amount and they're at higher risk of having B12 deficiency as a result of that. People who have chronic alcohol use disorder may have atrophic gastritis. You can see this with age. And as we've said before, any of the weight loss surgeries can put you at risk of having uh, impaired problems in the stomach as well. The specific problem of pernicious anemia uh, is that you have a autoimmune process specifically targeting the gastric parietal cells in the, in the context of a gastritis. And so you do not get the production of the intrinsic factor, which is, which is necessary for absorption of vitamin B12. There are less common sort of infectious types of agents and things like that. Probably the most common of those being H. pylori infection, which can cause B12 deficiency. Uh, and then people who have had uh, operations involving their proximal or distal small intestine and had resections of those areas might be at risk of B12 deficiency. So really anywhere from the stomach, the proximal small intestine or the distal small intestine could lead you to be at risk of B12 deficiency. And this may be one of the reasons that B12 deficiency is so common. That's absorption, right? But let's talk a little bit about how B12 is used. So what it's used for, because that's actually relevant to the types of tests that we do. So tell me a little bit about what happens after B12 is absorbed. What is, what is it used to, uh, for and, and, and what does it do? So vitamin B12 is really involved in two important reactions that are necessary for good cellular health and, and you know, in our degrees, uh, neuronal health as well. Um, so it is involved in two reactions, essentially. So one in reaction involving um, methylmalonic acid, so MMA, and another, another reaction involving homocysteine and folic acid. Um, so essentially vitamin B12 is necessary as a cofactor for these enzymatic uh, transitions. So from MMA going um, to succinyl-CoA and homocysteine and folic acid going to methionine. Um, and ultimately one of the ways in which we try to diagnose or evaluate for a functional deficit in vitamin B12 is actually looking at these uh, cofactors in the, in the reaction. So in the case of 
you know, deficiency, functional deficiency of vitamin B12, we see increased methylmalonic acid and increased homocysteine, the two reactants that are um, essentially building up because they're not able to go through this pathway. One of the areas specifically where B12 is a cofactor, as we've been talking about, is uh, in the function of methionine synthetase, which basically metabolizes homocysteine into methionine, right? Uh, which uh, has a further important roles in sort of the cellular machinery. Nitrous oxide uh, basically inactivates the B12 as a cofactor in this process. So uh, people who have nitrous oxide excess, so people who are uh, frequently intoxicated with nitrous oxide may be absorbing B12, uh, but may, may have, uh, as a result of the nitrous oxide's use, making the B12 less functional uh, as a cofactor with uh, methionine synthase. So somebody with maybe low B12 to begin with or borderline B12 who uses nitrous oxide is going to see uh, relative precipitous dysfunction. The other time we see this with nitrous oxide, for example, is that when it's used perioperatively in somebody with sort of marginal or borderline B12 deficiency, uh, and then it's suddenly inactivated because of acute nitrous oxide exposure. Now to the neurological syndromes, and I think we all know that the most common or most sort of characteristic neurological syndrome with B12 deficiency is a myelopathy, the subacute combined degeneration. And that tends to be involving the posterior and lateral columns. Uh, and on MRI, this can be very characteristic where you get T2 hyperintensity in those posterior more than lateral columns, uh, usually without enhancement, uh, that it can extend through long segments of the posterior spinal cord and clinically correlates to the proprioceptive and large fiber uh, type of uh, problems uh, that we see on examination. Uh, of course, we can see cognitive dysfunction and we often check for B12 deficiency as a potentially reversible cause of, of dementia or, or cognitive dysfunction or, or emotional changes. You can often get a peripheral polyneuropathy. This tends to be symmetric often large fiber and can be combined with the myelopathy. So you can get a combination of a, the posterior spinal cord syndrome and a peripheral neuropathy. Uh, less common, you can get optic neuropathies. Uh, it would be a less common cause of an acquired optic neuropathy. And, and you can get an autonomic neuropathy as well, but again, less common. So as we've already talked about, you're gonna check serum B12, uh, but that doesn't always tell you about the reflective body stores of vitamin B12, and it can fluctuate considerably. And so we also look at how B12 is being used, you know, how we're getting through those two cycles in which B12 is a cofactor. And so we check the methylmalonic acid. And if methylmalonic acid is not being metabolized appropriately uh, with B12 as a cofactor, then you'll see accumulation of methylmalonic acid. So we would expect to see a high methylmalonic acid level in somebody with B12 deficiency. And similarly, homocysteine, as we've talked about before, is uh, metabolized through methionine synthase to methionine and, and folic acid plays a role in uh, that uh, as well. But if B12 is not functioning well, then you're going to see an excess of homocysteine. And so in deficiency, you should see both methylmalonic acid and homocysteine increase. So just one important point because of those cofactors that if you only have homocysteine elevation, but not MMA elevation, uh, then that is more likely to be consistent with folate deficiency 
And we'll get to that soon in this podcast. What's really nice is that the treatment of B12 deficiency, like all of these things, more B12. But as we talked about with the absorption issues, really, you probably want to be giving this parenterally. And, and the way that we give B12 parenterally is intramuscularly. And the frequency and amount of parenteral B12 we give depends on the severity and the acuity of the neurological syndrome. For very severe neurological syndromes, it can be daily. For less severe, it can be weekly or monthly. And for people with relatively mild deficiency, we can give B12 by mouth uh, and then monitor serum levels to see if there's a response as long as we don't think there's any major malabsorption issue. Just because we're talking about folate deficiency, this is not something that we see that causes uh, a lot of neurological dysfunction on its own. It's often associated with B12 deficiency at the same time, and it's very difficult to separate those. We've talked on other podcasts about how folic acid is particularly important in the prevention of neural tube defects in women at high risk of that in pregnancy and should be given prenatally or in the first trimester for maximum benefit. And there's emerging evidence to suggest that there are better cognitive outcomes in children of women with epilepsy with folic acid supplementation. So maybe not so much for direct neurological problems in patients, but certainly uh, we're very assiduous about folic acid uh, supplementation prenatally in women with epilepsy or women of childbearing age who might be at higher risk of uh, complications of uh, the treatment of their neurological disease to the fetus. So Aaron, why don't we move on to the fat-soluble vitamins? And again, most of these, they're sort of quick snappers. So we'll go in alphabetical order. Uh, vitamin A, uh, I always remember this one's in carrots, although in it, it's in lots of other things. People who have malabsorption issues, usually people who have problems with fat absorption are gonna get deficiencies of most of the fat-soluble vitamins. And then diets that are low in vitamin A, you might see uh, problems. But again, these tend to be in pretty significant malnutrition types of syndromes. And uh, vitamin A, of course, is extremely important in the eyes. Uh, so we see retinal uh, dysfunction with uh, vitamin A deficiency. We can see impaired uh, taste and we can see other things. And then we do have to worry about vitamin A and toxicity. And again, uh, this can be seen with excessive vitamin A supplementation or medications that might increase vitamin A levels, acne medications, for example. And one of the ones we see the most is idiopathic intracranial hypertension, uh, which can be uh, seen in people who are being treated with uh, medications or develop uh, syndromes where they have excessive vitamin A. So deficiency is pretty rare, except in very restrictive diets but occasionally we'll see idiopathic intracranial hypertension with vitamin A excess or medications that uh, promote, uh, it sort of enhance uh, vitamin A levels. Everybody talks about vitamin D. Again, you can get, you know, with severe vitamin D deficiency, you can get some neurological syndromes. There's mentions of myopathy, but it's probably most important in relation to disease risk in multiple sclerosis. And we could have a whole podcast, I'm sure we could have long discussions about uh, vitamin D and multiple sclerosis. Uh, but we do know from some large cohort studies that people who were on vitamin D supplementation or people who have higher vitamin D levels tended to have lower risk of multiple sclerosis, of some other clinically isolated syndromes, and even of associated disorders like neuromyelitis optica. 
I don't know. It, it, we probably all should be taking vitamin D, don't you think, Aaron, living in the Northeast as we do? Yeah, given how dark some of the winters can be up here, even just up in Connecticut, it probably wouldn't hurt. Finally, let's uh, talk about vitamin E and then we'll finish off with copper. So uh, vitamin E is an interesting one. We check it a lot. It's not something I've seen too much as a neurological syndrome. Vitamin E is a fat soluble vitamin. It's in lots of foods. Again, it typically is going to be the deficiency syndromes are going to be with malabsorption. Sometimes people who are on parenteral nutrition long-term and are not getting adequate fat-soluble vitamins, you can see vitamin E deficiency. And probably most commonly, actually, we see vitamin E deficiency as associated with uh, genetic syndromes. Uh, one that, you know, some that come up on uh, examinations include the A-beta lipoproteinemia or hypo-beta lipoproteinemia and, and all of these disorders basically impair the ability of transfer of, of the fat-soluble vitamins of the triglycerides into the places they need to go uh, to be useful. Uh, it's beyond my capabilities to explain all of these things other than to explain that they exist. Uh, vitamin E deficiency is interesting because we often see cerebellar dysfunction or we can see a myelopathy. And again, this is on the differential diagnosis for your posterior cord, your dorsal cord myelopathy that you see with B12. So we're often looking very carefully in people with a subacute or chronic myelopathy to make sure that they don't have some unmasked or unrecognized uh, uh, vit vitamin E uh, deficiency syndrome. I haven't picked it up yet, but I guess it could happen. And then you can also get retinopathies, eye movement abnormalities, things like that. But uh, mainly, I think we're looking at that myelopathy as the major uh, thing for vitamin E deficiency. And then finally, we go with copper. Copper is tricky, and there can be lots of different causes for copper deficiency. Something that comes up uh, on uh, quizzes includes Menke's disease, a genetic disorder causing uh, deficiencies in copper, malabsorption syndromes. Uh, so... GI surgeries, again, the TPN, parenteral nutrition can happen. And then I always uh, tell the residents to remember that too much zinc, you know, going too crazy with the zinc lozenges, uh, for example, can cause a relative copper deficiency. Aaron, you're, yeah. you're, pre you're pretty good with these absorption issues. So tell me exactly how zinc toxicity can cause excess loss of copper and, and copper deficiency. So essentially... The point with zinc is that you're ultimately going to be losing a lot of your copper just in your GI system, in your stools, because as zinc is increased, um, it actually leads to an um, increase in a protein that essentially copper has a higher binding affinity for than zinc, metallothionine. Um, so then as copper is absorbed and there's more of this metallothionine, um, the copper is bound to that instead of being systemically absorbed, and it just remains bound there in the enterocytes of the GI tract. So as you go about your day and these enterocytes are being sloughed off just as they are, you just lose your copper in your stools instead of actually systemically absorbing it where it can be useful and do its job. That's fascinating. And of course, uh, copper deficiency is another thing on the list of your dorsal columns problem, right? So uh, we talked about vitamin E, uh, we talked about B12, and then copper is the other one. So often a a uh, myelopathy or a myeloneuropathy, which can look very similar to that that is seen in B12 deficiency can be seen in copper deficiency. So we haven't talked about Wilson's disease, which is related to a mutation in most cases 
of ATP7B, which is a copper transporter protein, and basically allows copper to be incorporated into apocerulaplasmin, uh, therefore to be sort of transported into the bile and excreted. And as a result, you get accumulation of copper. Menke's disease actually is also a copper transporter problem. It's ATP7A. So for your board examination for Menke's disease, you remember it's 7A. For Wilson's disease, you remember it's 7B. And A and B, I guess you just remember that childhood comes first. So A and uh, Wilson's disease often presents a little later. So B and Menke's disease uh, really is, has to do with copper malabsorption. Uh, but Wilson's disease has to do with excess copper accumulation, including in liver, other tissues, the eyes causing Kaiser Fleischer rings. And then of course, in the basal ganglia causing all sorts of neurological disease, uh, including movement disorders, cognitive issues, et cetera. Thank you, Dr. Muller, for coming on today and talking with us about all of these different vitamin excesses and vitamin deficiencies. I think we had a good discussion regarding uh, the different uh, B vitamins in terms of the water-soluble vitamins, some of the key neurologic syndromes that we see, uh, specifically with thiamine and vitamin B12, which we you know, invariably see in clinic and in, on the inpatient wards. I think going through uh, the fat-soluble vitamins as well was you know, very helpful, especially going into specific relationships that we see in terms of like MS. Um, and some more supplemental um, difficulties with uh, copper. Um, so I think moving forward, you know, we'll also have another talk coming up about some commonly tested toxins as well that we can, you know, broaden out this discussion on nutritional and supplemental neurology. I think that was great, Aaron. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Dr. Molo. It's always a pleasure.